I was in Marin County, we were just finishing the new album. I mean, literally, I think I had done my last little bits on it Saturday, Friday or Saturday, March, like whatever that was, 13th, 14th. The whole, you know, COVID, all of a sudden, it just went from something to something much bigger. My family was, uh, my daughter was here in Kauai, which on our family farm where my my family live, but my grandson and son-in-law were both in Europe. My grandson was in his last year of music school in Liverpool, and my son-in-law was also in Europe. And they, you know, when it really got to obvious that we should not be scattered all over the planet, (laughs) my grandson left school. My son-in-law, he flew into Northern California. I was up there. We all flew to Kauai, which is where they live, you know, and we have been here ever since. So that was March 16th. I, I just, and I was, you know, up, we were renting a house for, uh, for part of the band members up in Northern California because we'd been recording up there. We'd rented this house for a year. And I, my car is still sitting on the street in front of that house. It's March 16th. I mean, I just got on a plane and came here. I have instruments. Luckily, the woman who was the owner of the house is just amazing. So, you know, I have instruments there, amps, I have all kinds of stuff. And she's, she's back there now. And we're, you know, but it's, it was, it all just happened so quickly. That said, you know, our family home here, which we've had since 1981, we bought this land in 81. I, I was already living here, but we got this land in 81. Our little family farm, we have a little organic family farm. And I can't imagine anywhere more fortunate that we could possibly be that, to ride this out than here. You know, we have I've been gardening. We have had gardens anyway, but I've been gardening a lot since that time. So we've really expanded our gardens and we have fruit trees. We don't have like farm animals, but we have six cats now. So we just have each other and in the land. And um, we've been able to grow enough food to give food away, which has been really nice. There's a place that you would really feel blessed to ride out something like this. That's where we are. Um, so I'm really grateful, and I just I haven't even really talked about it that much because I I feel so I wish I could just have a magic wand and have everybody have this possibility for themselves, you know, especially people that are like have been you know locked in apartments, children where they can't go out. I'm really grateful, and I'm you know we had we had a real dear friend. Um, take her own life a couple of weeks ago here people are really suffering on so many levels and it's just as it as this goes on and on i think people's mental health is challenged deeply and my heart hurts what do you do for that mentally how do you deal with the situation how how do you process everything that's happening right now i'm really mad politically (laughs) i'm just like furious at our current uh so I, and I, but that's not new. <laughs> that's no, that's not new. But it's more, it's enhanced. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the, the, you know, the evolving dictatorship in our country and milita- militarization of the police and the racial issues and and, and the rise of white supremacy, um, all of that. So um, that doesn't help my mental health, but it certainly. Um, you know, one of the things I do is stay involved because it, you know, you could, I mean, you could do this anywhere, but particularly here, you could kind of be on an island and tune things out. But I don't do that. My family, we, 
you know, we don't do that. So we stay involved and stay active and stay, you know, every single day I try and um, look to some candidate or something that I can make a little contribution to. Um, and it just, every time I do that, I, I feel really good. I just like try and, you know, it's not much, but if everybody gives not much, I mean, if everybody gave $1 to any particular campaign, if we, you know, could make a huge difference. So I feel like that makes a difference. I write a lot. I, I engage with people. So on the political level, um, and you know, the Ace of Cups just released um, a new track yesterday off of our new, our upcoming album. And also with Rachel Ann, who is our kind of, I call her unmanager because we're unmanageable, but Rachel really worked on this project that we all got involved in doing a story, a a narrative of the 19th amendment, the history of the 19th amendment, all the way up to today through the voting rights act of 65 and uh, about 40 different women and girls came on and took a little piece of the script and, and uh, narrated that. And um, we, that was released yesterday as well. So, so there have been things to be involved in that feel worthwhile in terms politically, both individually and as a band. Um, And I think the other question, you know, working with plants, working on the land has really helped me in terms of my mental health and, and just watering every day and looking at every little plant and see what's, what's thriving and what's not, or, you know, dead, taking off dead leaves. I mean, just being involved with nature and the earth, that has always been a um, a really nourishing practice for me. Um, I have my yoga practices um, and being around family because the truth is that my daughter, son-in-law and grandson and I have not been in the same place for this long together in years you know, even when I would come to the farm, I'd be here for a couple of months and then I'd be off, especially since the Ace of Cups started recording and doing both the first album and this one. I've been gone so much. We toured all last summer. So I haven't been really with family on a steady basis and it's been beautiful. Do you think that there's something kind of inherent in the act of, you know, moving to farmlands on Kauai that just in and of itself is kind of maybe pulling yourself out of society a little bit? Well, I came here when I was 15 years old to this island. Um, because, and I came on a summer program that took teens to the local high school in Kapa'a. And I spent the summer here. And I came here because I was like desperate to learn to surf. And I, I was born and raised in San Francisco when the water was cold and the waves were really intense and wetsuit technology in 1963 was not what it is now. Um, so I came here because I, I just was craving warm water in the ocean, in the ocean and surfing. And um, I learned to surf and fell in love with the culture here. So I literally had to be dragged off the island at the end of that summer by my mother. Like I was just crying. I'd found a family I, that was ready to let me live with them. I could have stayed. I would have stayed. So, you know, I think for me, the, the, the nature of Hawaiian culture and I was really kind of taken in by some local people and particularly some Hawaiian watermen who really taught me. Um, the, but the way that everybody here in, in Hawaiian culture, everyone, all like children call all adults, auntie and uncle, 
you, you just might meet them and then, then you go, hi, Auntie, could we do this or that? You know, there's just this sense of connection and family and um, um, sharing and, 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 and connection with, with everything, with nature, with the winds, with the land, with the way the Hawaiians used to, you know, farm this land. I mean, farm the, you know, the island, you know, with sharing the water as the water came down from the mountains, there would be sluices and people would farm their little piece and then open up the water so it could get to the next farm. I mean, there just, there was so much in the culture that touched my heart. I I had read, did you, I don't know if you remember ever, um, the book um, Island, I think it was Aldous Huxley's book. Anyway, that, that book is, a, you know, kind of presents an alternative culture. Somebody's like, somebody from England is stranded on this island. And, um, but the culture of that island was like a revelation to me when I read it. And it was a lot like what life was like here. So I moved here when the Asa Cups broke up. And I had also split up with my, my husband, Noel, and I took, my daughter, Tora, and came here. I really didn't know I was moving here. I just thought I was coming for a while. But as it turned out, you know, here I am. Um, and I raised my daughter here and co-managed a political campaign in the early days and then got together with some other women. And we started a private school, which is now 42 years old and has 400 students and a 40-acre campus. And so I really dug into the community and to the island and wanting to be a contributing member here and you know, move things forward as I saw possible. I guess I tend to sort of associate some of um, Hawaii with that surfer culture of being very staunchly local and maybe when it comes to surfers being very territorial about outsiders. You know, at first that wasn't true because at first there weren't that many outsiders. I mean, like right at first uh, there was some of that, but I think it really depended on how the people that weren't from here respected or behaved in the water. And if you, if you, if you came in humbly and you didn't, you know, try and, you know, take over, but just waited your turn on the waves or, you know, you know, respected those who had been, you know, this was their local beaches, you know, that was, you know, then, and people could kind of see that you weren't here just to take, but you were here to give into the community you know, after a while, that, you know, but then there was just, you know, then the surf culture took off and the surf industry took off and so many people took over that the, you know, the local people lost their, you know, the, the sense of, you know, their, their tradition in their home. So a lot of those surf spots are just so crowded now. And, you know, that, that sort of openness, yeah, I mean, I still, you know, have, you know, so many friends from, you know, who were are of Hawaiian descent, of, you know, some Hawaiians that are here, and, you know, the, the relationships um, are treasured, treasures for me and for my family, you know, I think, you know, surf culture and, and things like that, you know, had just got damaged by numbers and people's lack of respect, you know. Do you get a sense that if you had moved there now that it maybe wouldn't have been as easy to, to plant your roots? Well, it would be really different because, you know, um, a lot of people move here and don't try and do that. 
you know, they just kind of move here from wherever they're coming from and bring all their, you know, habits from, you know, LA or wherever and don't, and don't even want to try and get into a sense of place, like to start to know what, where is this place where they've moved, you know, the sovereign nation of Hawaii, right. That was taken over by the U S government. Um, you know, that there's, there was, you know, a beautiful monarchy here. There were traditions and cultures and a lot of people move here and just kind of, kind of try and scoot over the top of that and not pay any attention. So, you know, and I think that people who move here and want to, you know, get into local culture, learn about the land, learn about the plants, learn about the traditions, learn about the language, learn about, you know, everything. I think that there are certainly ways to do that. So I think it kind of, it's not, I mean, when we first moved here, you know, um, I mean, not, not even when I was 15, but when, we, when I, my daughter and I moved here when I was in 1972, we were dancing hula with an amazing hula teacher that we, you know, I, and then I got together with a, a man who was from Oahu and we, I played Hawaiian music with him for, for the next 10 years for, that was our work was like playing, playing us. So I got really into the language at the time and the music. Um, so the, I think if you bring your um, humble heart to learn about a culture within, you know, people recognize that you're really interested. And then certainly people here are deeply shared with me through the years. And I, I, I know that happens. If you bring that, you'll find people that will connect with you in that way. Do you get a sense of things that you changed about yourself in order to fit in better there, or, you know, at least kind of adapt to the culture? That's a funny question. Yeah. I mean, well, well, first of all, you know, I had never lived in a place where the Caucasian culture in San Francisco was, was the more dominant prevalent. Right. So, so, you know, when my daughter started a school um, and she was the only little blonde white toehead blonde person in her class and was and really met with some, you know, racism and, and teasing. Yes, yeah. yeah, she was really, you know, and she would come home crying because kids would be chasing her. Things like that happened at times, not all the time. But, you know, and I just would hold her and I'd just say, you know, that's, you know, I'm so sorry that happened and try and help her with it. But I would also say, you know, there's, because we're here, you're experiencing the, the other side of this kind of behavior that other, you know, if you would never know what it's like to be the, that person who's the minority who's, you know, um, and, you know, if we were living on the mainland in many places, there'd be other, other people who'd be the minority and you'd be the majority. So you're getting a chance to feel what it feels like. And I know it doesn't feel good, but, um, you know, and, you know, there was a lot of that everywhere. I mean, there was just, you know, people were not, and, you know, I was a hippie too, right? I got the, the suspicion that you might've been Denise. <laughs> <laughs> and so even though I was not, you know, by then hippies were coming here, you know, some of whom were lovely and respectful and some of whom were very disrespectful. People would just like walk onto somebody's land and pick their food off of their trees and think that everything was open for everybody. So there was a backlash uh, in local culture by that time, which was 72 um, to that kind of behavior and, you know, being immodest, you know, like the Hawaiians, you know, 
many of them, you know, be, became Christians through the uh, when the missionaries came, and they they are like modest people in terms of n- nudity and things like that. And so to have people just come here from somewhere else and you know go to a local beach and be naked or something, you know, it was like difficult for people. They didn't they weren't didn't welcome that. So you know we didn't do that, but we kind of got lumped in at moments. But when uh, when we were starting Island School, my the seven there were seven women. Uh, I was. I was one of seven women who were their founding mothers of Island School. And I was, we, by then we were developing our curriculum and we had to go to meetings with the, you know, the, uh, like the board of education and submit our curriculum and do all of these things and, uh, you know, be representing in the community to start this school. And, you know, you can see me with my bushy hair. And at one point I just like, okay, I just cut it. I went to my friend who was a barber and I said, just, who was been in the military. I said, just give me, give me the shortest haircut you can. And he just cut everything off, like, you know, to nothing, you know, just, and I went in my like moo's that I didn't wear, except for I was going to those kind of meetings or those kind of little Hawaiian looking clothes. And I'd go to the meetings for, you know, representing the school and people treated me totally differently. You know, the, and when I say these were, these were board of education people, they were local people, you know, a lot of times of Japanese descent and, you know, my bushy hair was sort of not in their cultural, they didn't, they weren't used to that. So when I was, I had a little short, straight, you know, little hair, it really helped. People treated me differently. So there, when you ask about things that were changed, that changed, I mean, they were kind of outer things like that. I think on a deeper level, it was just um, like good, good changes that happened to me from living in this culture. How much of a tool has music been? when it comes to that kind of outreach, you know, when it, when it comes to connecting with other people from different cultures? I think it's, for me, it was a huge tool. Um, I mean, it was just the way, it, because between, you know, studying hula with um, Roselle Bailey, who was our, our teacher, but, and then playing Hawaiian music and just sitting at the feet of masters, um, slack key masters, playing with them, playing in, in, in shows with them, but just as often playing, you know, going, being invited to, you know, a, a luau or a party at someone's house or, you know, Friday afternoon, Connie Kapila, just come on over. You know, we just got the carport. We put at the picnic table there and there'll be music all night long. And just to be able to sit and listen to the, to this amazing music and, and you have somebody show you a lick or, sh- or teach you a song and just come in with that kind of respect and appreciation for this amazing music. Um, you know, that was huge. One of the things we spoke about last time as it pertains to Ace of Cups was this idea of whether or not you felt like you had something to prove being one of very few or maybe the only all-female bands in the scene, something we didn't really touch on, and I suspect this is the case to some degree, is that that must have been amplified in a place like Hawaii, where you were not of the culture. You know, you were this little white Jewish girl coming in and playing music. You must have felt like you had a lot to prove. One of the reasons that I wanted to start Island School was because the schools here were not kind of as progressive as what they were in Marin County by the, when I left there and I was looking at my daughter was three by the time I started working on Island School and I, 
I had visited some of the schools here and I was like, oh no, you know, they were still- Are they religious by and large? There was, like in our area, there was one parochial school, but there was also the public schools. But they, it was more in terms of of, um, sexism. There was still a lot of, of, I remember in the kindergarten class that I went and visited at at Kapaz school on the wall, there were all these posters of possible- uh, career paths or livelihoods. And there was a doctor who was a man, and then a nurse who was a woman, and a fireman who was a man, and a secretary who was a woman. And I was just like, oh, no, 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 no. And Title IX had already passed. I mean, there were things were changing, but the, the island was a little far behind in that. And I think it was a cultural thing. And you have to know, Hawaii was the first state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. So, and so in a lot of, and, you know, Hawaiian women were incredible water women, you know, they were great surfers and divers. And uh, it's an interesting blend of, um, of, of cultural uh, threads uh, and influences. We tend to think of Hawaii as being a pretty progressive place politically by and large. And it is. And, you know, some of the kind of the roles in terms of, I mean, not really in Hawaiian culture, less so in Hawaiian culture, but the other cultures that came in too were in a sense less progressive maybe than the, than the Hawaiians, you know. I mean, the Hawaiians had a much bigger openness for gender diversity than some of the other cultures seemed to. Um, and then, of course, then there was the Christianity overlay into it all. You know, I mean, I think really what I probably felt I had to prove here was just that I was a good person and that I was not going to be a, 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 a drain on the island. I was going to be a contribution to the, to the community. I guess I, I meant more specifically, you know, having something to prove as far as getting up there and playing with the local musicians as an outsider. They were really, for the most part, really welcome. I mean, I, yeah, that was like, you know, music as that, language. I mean, I didn't just jump in. And, I mean, I was humble, you know, I mean, I, you know, this is music that these, that people had, you know, spent you know, their, their grandparents and parents had, you know, I mean, we're talking, you know, as I, I say sometimes, listen, this Hawaiian culture is so, it's so musical in its constituency of what it is that, you know, your guy who drives up to your house with a UPS package is a better singer than most people you've ever met in your life. And they, you know, it just, when he goes home and he opens his mouth, you're just like, Oh my heavens. Right. It's just in the culture. People sing and dance and, and communicate that way. And that's how families hang out. And, you know, it's, it's um, something that I had never really seen before. I'm sure it's in, you know, you see it in, you know, I mean, my, my family sang, but, not you know we did we played a lot of music together but not well not like this this was a whole nother level and you know so yeah I think I didn't feel like I had I had to prove anything but I also it's sort of like you need to you need to not step into the mix unless you really you know you know until you're ready <laughs> you know it, yeah I mean it's it's like anything else you know you don't you're not going to go to Birdland and stand up and 
right, trying exactly. to play trumpet with the band. Just like you want to go there and just be a humble listener and take it all in and go home and practice and learn. And How long did it take before you felt ready to play along with them? Well, it was, it was just evolved. I mean, I was, I was, I was always playing anyway. And actually Mary Gannon, who Mary Alfield, Mary Gannon from the Issa Cups moved here. Um, I moved over in June and she came the following Thanksgiving to bring all my equipment. She didn't know she was moving here either. So she moved, moved she, she got on a, because when I left, I had a, a house in, in, North, in Marin County that I shared with some other people, Mary included. And I left my instruments there. All I brought was a dulcimer and a tent and my baby. I'm sensing a common theme with you, Denise. <laughs> I heard that story twice of you, of you leaving all the instruments behind and, and yeah. fleeing the... Yeah, the, uh, well, yeah, the it moment. did happen then. Because I didn't, I didn't think I was moving here. Well, and when for COVID, I, I certainly had no idea I'd be here all these months later. But Mary got on a, a plane um, with her daughter, Talina, who we sang about on our first album. Um, and she got on a plane in San Francisco, bringing 11 pieces of luggage, um, no extra baggage fees. She brought my sitar. She brought my tampura. She brought an amp. She brought my electric guitar, my Gibson Telfarlo. She bought and her, you know, she brought 11 pieces of luggage and came over, you know, wrapped like the sitar wrapped in blankets that they put on the plane. It was just like a different time, you know, <laughs> and got off the plane with all this. And she thought she, she didn't, she only bought a one-way ticket, but she thought she'd stay a few weeks and go back. And then she never went back. And then she met her husband. We were all doing Aikido at the time. She came to an Aikido class and met her husband, Andy, and, um, you know, subsequently married and had, uh, four more children. <laughs> it's, a, it's a familiar story uh, of not knowing you're moving somewhere and then being that person. And, and that's. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, so Mary and I were playing as a duo right from when she got here. We, I mean, we met a lot of different people to play with. Some people were, were playing Hawaiian music, but many people were playing, you know, the current music of the day or folk music or, you know, Beatles or whatever. I mean, there's always people to play with. And I was writing and, you know, so was Mary. So we were, we were always playing. And, and so getting into the slack key, that was, took a little, little bit, but that wasn't the only thing that we had gigs in little local places, Mary and I as a duo. Um, and then later, I mean, some, you know, some years later, we had an all women's band uh, with some local women here and played at the club med in Hanalei or at, yeah, above Hanalei. We played at club med for, a couple of years, every, um, every, like every Saturday night, we had the Saturday night gig there. And it was like the most big thing going on on the island was, I mean, on that part of the island was going to Club Med. So we had a band called Tropical Punch. And um, so, you know, anything to keep playing, right? And you know, that was a really fun band. We had, we had a good time. Are you, are you generally more comfortable playing with women? That's an interesting question. I mean, because there's these two these two instances, and obviously I in both with cases, a lot of bands with men yeah. too. I I would assume that in both cases there had to be a bit of a concerted effort, right? Because like women were likely in the minority of the musicians around, right. so you kind of almost had to go out of your way to get a group of women together to play. Well, I didn't get that second band together. A couple of the others did, and they knew that Mary and I had played in Ace of Cups, so they came to me and said, "Do you want to be in this band?" And I was like, "I don't know." And they said, "Well, Mary said she'll be in it if you'll be in it." And I was like. Okay, I'd love to do that with Mary too. So that's, but it was, it was really fun. Um, and I'd been playing so much acoustic music at that time that it was really fun to get back on electric guitar. Um, and Mary was playing bass in that band. So I wasn't 
playing bass at that point. I was still playing electric guitar and harmonica. But, you know, I, I, there's been a lot of bands that I've played with or units that I played with, with, with guys that I've loved. And it was a wonderful experience. And, um, you know, so I, I just love playing with people that I can play with, you know, and, and that, you know, it's, it, that's not so much gender as that, that, that magical place where you can like lock in with people and have a good time and play some good music. I think the thing that's happened with women more is there's like just in some of the bands that I played in, there was more, um, more harmony and creative in the harmonies with the women than with some of the men, but others of the men were totally there for that. So yeah, I think, you know, music just anywhere, anywhere with anyone with whom you can connect. That's probably goes back to your original question about what helps your mental health. What are your practices that help that? Yeah. Can you um, expand on that a little bit of what role music plays in your daily life during the pandemic? Well, I have to say, Less than I would like because with the Ace of Cups new album coming out and all the stuff around it, you know, getting the liner notes, getting all the lyrics, getting all the, looking at all these little things that you have to make sure there isn't a mistake in. All of the business piece is like really taken more of my time and energy than I would, if I had my druthers, I would like. So I... I a little had a little less time to you know sir I some people can do both really easily just flip to business head and production you know whatever it was and then creative but for me it's like I need to kind of dwell in the you know they say in in in, in Sanskrit you know in the bhava of it, in the beingness of the creative place and not have to be just shifting back and forth all the time um, so that's that's but uh, that said. You know, I, you can see my bases are right here. I like I'll, I'll play. Um, I have been writing somewhat less than I would have liked to have been, just because of all this other. But I've been practicing. I actually, you know, I went to music school at, at MI and Los Musicians Institute in LA at the base the base program, and then I did some number of courses of Berkeley music online. And then since the pandemic, I signed up for Scott's bass lessons which is this guy who has this great online academy and i've just been working through his curriculum um so just doing that has been you know it's so fun you know like oh you can arpeggiate this that way and then work on that you know so but i i haven't put as much time in it every day as i would have had i not had the kind of business piece to be you know, working on that. I'm the kind of person that if I don't, I forget stuff, you know, I, I kind of always been that way. And probably as I've gotten older, it's probably more that way. It's like I, I learned, you know, I studied college Sanskrit and stuff and there are certain things I totally am up with it, but there's a lot that I've forgotten because I don't use it now. And it's sort of like language. If I'm not, if I'm not in it every day, it kind of goes away. Why did you study Sanskrit? Oh, because I was, you know, teaching yoga and playing music in the kirtan world or the, the kind of devotional music world. So I did a lot of that for for years and in, in, uh, based out of L.A. and played those festivals and everything. And I was I was finishing a degree um, that I had started and then stopped. And I was finishing a degree in Sanskrit was my language. So 
Um, and it's, a, it's kind of like studying linguistics. It's such a root language. You learn a lot about language when you study Sanskrit, which is fascinating. Um, but, you know, if I'm not doing something all the time, it just kind of goes away. Is that why you're still studying the bass? I mean, obviously, you've been playing music professionally for a long time. I would assume yeah. that you've got some mastery of it. Um, but I'm a real simple bass player. There's, you know, just endless amounts that I could learn. And if I, you know, you know, I'm more of a, of a, a writer and somebody who wants to kind of express through words and music and arrangements and voices together. Um, then I am like a, certainly not a virtuoso bass player. I'm just a simple bass player. So it's always good for me to be working on it because my chops will just go away if I don't. Um, so I, I work on it and, you know, I have a really wonderful teacher who is used to be in LA is up in Seattle now. And his name is Andrew Boucher. He's, um, really, um, he's an amazing gospel player and he was in Prince's last band as his bass player. And he's just amazing. And I don't play like him. I mean, he plays usually six string basses and he's, you know, plays all this kind of funky stuff and all the things that I can't do, but I love his music and I love his feeling on the bass. So I just pull out my videos of lessons of Andrew and just practice. On Tuesday, I, I did an interview with the musician Laraji. Do you know him? I don't think he's a, I I guess he considers himself a a new age musician. You know, he's like, he's a big meditator. He describes this phenomenon uh, of what he calls uh, sound vision, which is just this sort of um, this inner music, you know, this way of kind of like channeling your inner music. That's beautiful. And and I'm curious if if you've had a a similar experience, you know, I, I know, as you said, Obviously, you're a really big, you're a yoga instructor. Um, I assume that you, you meditate to some degree. And, and I'm curious what role those kinds of practices have on your music making. I think those practices you know, nourish being present. And for a, a long period of time, some years, you know, I was really mostly playing music in those kind of settings that were the yoga festivals and things like that, where, where it was like often call and response chanting much in Sanskrit, but with, you know, you know, thousand or 2000 people dancing, but they were also chanting in response to someone who was leading. I wasn't the the leader of the chants. I was the bass player. Um, But um, that, you know, that music is, it's almost, it's, it can be trance-like and it can take you to that place of um, transcendence and, and oneness, especially call and response really connects everybody. So, because there's someone who's sort of leading, leading the chant, but then the response is the same thing, right? So you're just in this circuit of oneness. That's, something that I think in other kinds of music, you also want to feel um, whether, you know, it, whether it's a, you know, kind of electric, you know, like Ace of Cups, kind of whatever you want to call us, whatever we are, you know, rock and roll. Is- yes, exactly. But, you know, you want to feel that connection. Um, and um, so I, but the, when I think meditation and, 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 and a good yoga practice, and certainly for me, psychedelics, um, totally um, 
made it very clear to me that there's just this one energy that we all are expressions of and part of and connected in like this web that there is nothing but this oneness in that kind of music and the kind of music that kind of came out of the, the yoga kirtan world. First of all, the music was about that oneness <laughs> and you really experienced it all really often in that, in those practices. Um, so does that relate to what you're saying? To expand on that, what, what role did psychedelics play in kind of helping establish this idea of who you were creatively? Well, you know, for me, the psychedelics, I think <laughs> even before I took them, this was so, but more so after, like a lot of the music I've ever loved and the music that I've written and played is trying to, with words, point to or express that unity and that oneness and that love. Like if we can't, to evoke it, to express it, to try and, you know, talk about it or sing about it in a way that that is authentic and not trite, you know, like, I mean, although, you know, there are people that could just sing, there's only love, there's only love, there's only love. And you would just want, never want to hear anything else because of what they brought to it. You know, um, I was always like, you know, our new album, there's a, a track that we released kind of unexpectedly because of COVID that is on the album as a medley, but it's called We Were Made for Love. And it was a song that Mary Gann and Alfieler and I wrote, um, and I did the spoken word thing. That was my first like recorded real spoken word kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, rap-ish, <laughs> um, Jewish rap-ish. But you know, it, it was my, it was again saying that it was about just trying to point to love. And, um, and so, you know, psychedelics only made that more, real and visceral, which is experiencing those, that sort of the dissolution of any notion I had of separateness for any, anything, any of us, for anything, you know? So once I had experienced that, you know, one of my images for that is sort of like, I always knew there was this pulse of oneness, you know, but I kind of felt like all of a sudden I was like this, this little wave that shot up in the ocean and looked around and then, Oh, and then went back down and was part of it all. And then that connection of being both wave and ocean, that's never gone away. You have to experience a period of being outside of it to appreciate that you were in it previously. Yeah. You know, it's more like, you know, the way like mushrooms are like, you see what you see, but then under, under the earth, they're all, it's all connected like the roots, you know, and, we know that we all know that because we it's because it's so, but we can kind of forget it. You know, we know it when we're, it's, it's in our, you know, it's in our molecules to know that. I don't know if I would push back, but I, I you know, it seems you like, <laughs> it just seems walking around the world that it, it's clear to me that there are people who don't think that they're connected in that way. I don't, that's totally true. And I'm just saying that I agree. You know, it's like, that's why we have what we have going on in this country right now. You know, it's like, because 
people just think there's they're a wave, not connected to anything. If you told me that Donald Trump didn't think there were any any other people in the world, I would believe you. You know, and that I think is almost a mental condition in his case. Sure. Yeah. You know, sociopathy, I think not to... like his soul isn't awake. You know, his soul isn't in the connectivity. And you know, to me when I look at that, I just think this is somebody who was just so damaged so early that you know that that connectivity um, was just you know, uh, frozen, you know, it's there, but he doesn't feel it. Music is an opportunity. Being in a band is an opportunity to be a unit with other people. And so does dancing to music, listening. I mean, music as just something for us all to share. It's in the air, you know, touching us all. It's, it's the, in, you know, that's one of those places where we come together. Um, that's what's so magical about music. I mean, it's, this is a really weird analogy, but I always felt, because I grew up in San Francisco, when there were earthquakes, which there were fairly often, not necessarily yeah, always. No, I'm, I'm from Fremont. I think I told you that last time that I'm from, I'm from the East Bay. So I, I had a similar experience. Yeah, so I, you know, I obviously didn't want anybody to be hurt or damaged, but there was something about an earthquake that always thrilled me because I felt like we were all paying attention to the same experience. And it just, there was something about that, you know, like that we're all on this same earth and it's shaking and we're all being shaken at the same moment, you know? And there was something about that that was like, wow, you know, because everybody's usually like off on their own little pathway, you know, mental, whatever. And then all of a sudden, and we're all looking at each other, you know, we're all feeling this. In a time when there are millions or billions of things vying for your attention and there there's just seems to be more things happening in the news than ever before and obviously more, more places to look, are you hopeful that something like COVID can be an opportunity for people to realize that they're all part of one thing and, and have everyone's attention focused on the same thing at the same time, literally across the world. Oh my gosh. I mean, I would so love that to be the case. And I think for some it is, and for some countries it is more than others. You know, I think that people have really pulled together in different places and I, I don't know. I, I would, I would hope so. That would be my total prayer and desire that we could take care of each other in a much deeper and kinder way and help each other navigate whatever this all is. I'm really um, hurt and sad about kind of all the people that I know either personally or maybe one degree off through on social media, but people in that who are, going down the uh, QAnon direction and um, all these conspiracy theories. And um, that really, I just, I'm worried about that a lot. I'm worried about it. And I, and I, and I'm worried about that. The, um, the, the fact that the sort of trust and, and uh, trust in, in, and education and it's being so, um, minimized, you know, that trust in, in, in people that we um, would normally turn to, the people that have devoted their lives, like my, our, 
our good friend, Larry Brilliant, Dr. Larry Brilliant, who was one of the founders of Seva Foundation, who was one of the, um, who helped end smallpox 10 years in India, um, you know, is a leading pandemic or epidemiologist in the world and public health. You know, he was the head of Google's foundation studying these things and helping in the world. You know, it's like when people go, well, you know, I don't trust the experts or I was just like, oh my gosh, this is a person who, and he and his colleagues and all over have devoted their lives to studying and preparing for these things to be able to help us all and um, to, be, to, to dismiss them and for people to feel like, well, I'm just listening to my truth or whatever. I'm like, no, your truth isn't worth listening to right now. You know, it's not about your truth. You know, if you, you know, there's people that this is their devotion. Listen to them, you know. So it's hard. I, 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 I um, one of my good friends last night, Kat Dyson. I don't know if you know who she is. She's an amazing guitarist. Yeah, plays now with Cindy Lauper a lot. But we we've played together a lot in the yoga kirtan world with an amazing woman named C.C. White who does what she what is called soul kirtan so she brings her soul background to these prayers it's really wonderful so, yeah we um yeah we've um so Kat and I have played together a lot and um so we talked last night and she was she was just telling me not to worry I'm, I'm worried about the election I'm worried about the post office and I'm worried about all and she's like, don't worry, Denise, just let go. You know, and I, I wish I totally could. Just talking to her made me feel a little better. I'm, I'm worried about this country. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if a lot of people are tuned that much to the way the horrible dictatorships of the world have arisen and don't recognize it when it's happening here. And I feel just more um, primed for that, you know, just being a Jewish person whose family came from Eastern Europe. Um, I just, you know, I watch the rise of white supremacists and, um, and their hate. And I, I'm worried. I don't think this is something that's being talked about enough is the connection between the wellness community and QAnon. I've read a lot about QAnon, like a lot about QAnon. And one of the things that really struck me in it, I was reading an interview with somebody who follows, he's he's an expert in a lot of these radicalized movements. And he said something along the lines of, he was amazed by the speed with which people were becoming radicalized by QAnon. In fact, more so than ISIS. Yes, I totally agree. What's the connection between the, the wellness community and a conspiracy theory like QAnon? I think I have friends that are really experts in this, but so and I don't I don't claim to be that from what I know. But, but you've watched it happen. Yeah, I'm you. Yeah. And I, you know, it's like that. I I think here's my conspiracy theory, but I, I'd say it's probably got some groundedness. I think I think it relates to um, the you know, Cambridge Analytica and the algorithms and the Russians and the bots that, you know, I feel as though the, the, the algorithms helped those who have the intent to kind of corral people with certain beliefs into either not voting or supporting Trump um, have used that, those algorithms to be able to design 
um, lures into what I will call this rabbit hole. And I think, so all of these people that, that, you know, they were sort of there and they were in the wellness community or the yoga community. And they're all about freedom and self-expression, but also anti-vaxxers and um, afraid of, uh, you know, like 5G and a lot, some of them are flat earth believers. These are people that are like, well known in those worlds and I've watched them go like really that person who was you know I'm a vegan right I'm I'm always interested in here you know hearing somebody's I'm not I don't I'm not militant and I, I don't lay a bunch of stuff on people although I try and offer things when people are open you know some but I but I you know I'm interested if someone has a good evidence or makes a good film about say veganism I'm like you know it's but I feel is that we mostly lead by example in this world. So, you know, people look at me. I haven't eaten meat since I was 18, right? So, and I've been a vegan for the last 15 years. And so, you know, that's just my practice. That being said, you know, so I, bet, I sort of watch that world to some degree. And then these people start going into QAnon. And I'm just going like, well, okay, here's Trump and the meat industry, you know, and all his Texans. And... How can you reconcile being for Trump if you're, you know, it's like none of this makes, it, 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 it defies logic for me. And it doesn't, I mean, not to mention flat earth and all of the other things, but, but there's just people that seem more and more vulnerable to these conspiracies. And um, I, and you know, the, when I go, I, when they start posting, you know, sometimes I'll just go to their pages and look at them and go, who are, you know, what did happen? So I'll go there and it'll say some name and then it'll say under their, you know, their word, it'll say light worker or something like, okay, you're a light worker or you're a wellness coach and light worker. Or, you know, all these people that are like, where is your foundation? Where is your foundation in humanity? Where is your generosity? And where is your, your, you know, care about the inequities in our society? Because a lot of times the whole yoga wellness world was very um, not inclusive, you know, and didn't, I mean, there were, there are certainly exceptions, but, you know, there were, it was sort of a, a little feedback loop of white people, you know, and, uh, you know, and not always, but more and more, you know, because it was expensive often. You know, all of these things, having a wellness coach, well, who can afford a wellness coach, right? So, you know, so the people that were kind of living off of this thing, it's like they're not grounded in, in just basic humanity and equity. And now, you know, this whole save the children, they, they've, 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 you know, believe that there's all these pedophiles. You know, and the thing that bothers me about that is that, like, the Ace of Cups played this last summer, I was in fall for a, a really wonderful organization in Santa Cruz called Monarch Family Services. That's been there for something like 50 years in different locations with safe houses for women, fighting tra- tra- you know human trafficking, working with people in prison who were abusers. I mean, they just they have a long, great track record in these areas. So there, and I know a number of people who've been working on human trafficking, and my my cousin was working on that in England for years. You know, so there are people that 
have devoted their life to this, just like I was saying about Larry Brilliant with epidemiology. And then these people, conspiracy guys come in like, save the children, human trafficking with all this false information, taking away from the real people doing the real work in these areas. And it's a real thing, but not the way people are describing it in QAnon. So it's very, it's really co-opting something that's important and, and, you know, making it into, you know, falsehoods. And I was sort of explaining to somebody recently about Pizzagate and QAnon. And, and the thing, one of the things about it that's so frustrating is I think that in a lot of these cases, they have all of the right clues and are drawing the wrong conclusion. But yeah, because any conspiracy has to have some basis of something, right? You know, it, it needs some little basis of, of truth, but then it goes off. And, you know, yeah. yeah. So I, I agree. I'm really interested that your friend who studied ISIS is saying how rapidly this is happening because I see it every single day. Something I wanted to ask you about it is, do you think that because people in the wellness community and in, in, into things like yoga, into things like Eastern medicine are open to ideas like that, that that in and of itself makes them more susceptible yeah. to conspiracy? Yeah. I do. Because, because, you know, there are things that we have been told by Western medicine that very... Um, understandably we question right and and i've been that way a lot of my life you know i don't throw it at all out but there are certain things i i'm like no i'm I'm not gonna i'm not gonna you know like listen we were all raised with the 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 food chain or whether no the food was a pyramid the pyramid pyramid you know which was paid for by the cattle industry and the dairy you know so we know that we've been we were you know taught things that are totally, you know, just in the interests of, of uh, business, you know, that they weren't, they weren't for our health, you know? And so we, you know, having that kind of skepticism is a good thing. And, and knowing that we've been deceived is a good thing. You know, now that, you know, heart disease is, 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 uh, is second, the second killer in, in this country and cancer is the first, both of which can certainly be related to all of those, you know, the, that, that, food pyramid and, and all kinds of things around that, you know? So yeah, we've, we've been, we've been had by a lot of lobbyists through the years, including, you know, this, the tobacco industry. Um, so I understand you know, the fact that we wouldn't, we would be suspect is understandable and real. And, 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 you know, I think it's really good to be skeptical, but then when does that cross over into conspiracies? So, and that's, that, you know, that's that, that line you have to navigate is being, being skeptical, but then knowing how to do real research, not what they're calling research on, on Facebook or whatever, but real research where you, you know, and you, I think to me, this whole kind of fake media and all of those terms that are out there that, you know, that Trump has uh, espoused, um, you know, I have people that don't know how to find uh, journalists that have a journalistic ethic that have gone to journalism school and and have won Pulitzer prizes and know how to do real research, you know, like who do you trust? That you know they just trust somebody that comes on online or makes a YouTube video, and uh, that's that's scary. 
it's easier to watch a YouTube video than it is to read a, a long form story or a book. And I think that's what, that's what a lot of it comes down to. And to really start to be able to go, how do I learn which people to trust here? You know, uh, some outlying one doctor who says the same thing, you know, says something totally different than, you know, all the experts in the field. And then you look up that doctor and they have kind of a very spotted history. Um, but then, yeah. But people are making money from these, these um, conspiracy. And, you know, I, you know, and, you know, then when you kind of scratch them, they're like tied in with, with, you know, racism, anti-Semitism, and all of these other things too. And you're just like, you're really listening to these people. They're disgusting. For better, or for worse, you are somebody who's is pretty plugged in. You're you're paying attention to what's going on. But you know, in my interactions with you, you you seem to be a pretty happy, joyful person for the most part. What gives you hope? What gives you joy? Did I, did I ever tell you that Marcus Aurelius quote that kind of helps me a lot? I don't know. Was, I feel like I would have remembered a Marcus Aurelius quote coming from you. My ex-husband sent it to me right, right after 911 when I was just in that moment. And it was a Marcus Aurelius quote that said, the first rule is to keep an untroubled spirit. The second rule is to look things in the face and know them for what they are. How do you reconcile those two ideas? Even though what, everything we've just been talking about, and QAnon and Trump and everything. COVID and... Yeah. Um, I also try and nourish an, an untroubled spirit because first of all, I don't know. You know, I don't, I mean, I just, you know, there are things in this world that happen and you, you just think this is never going to get better or this is just only going to get worse. Or, you know, and then something... So something arises that, um, and maybe not even in your own lifetime, you know, that we can't, you know, I mean, when you even look at climate change, is there a way that, that our world will be survive? I don't know, but I, I'm not, when I look at the most, the people that I most respect in terms of climate change, a lot of them, they're still working. They haven't given up and just gone away. They're they're They think that there's, a hope and a chance. And if those people who are steeped in all the issues around climate change and watching, you know, all of it are working for positive change, if they can do that, I can do that. So, you know, I, and I think, you know, as an activist, you don't, you don't want to burn out because then that doesn't help anybody. So you have to kind of find that balance of just do your best and then nourish yourself. And I think either one on its own is not a good thing. You don't want to just be about nourishing yourself only ever and not stay tuned to the bigger picture, but you don't only want to, you know, be an activist at the expense of taking care of, you know, you have to be able to get up and, and, and find those moments of joy. We all need to, to find those moments of joy, whether it's our bunny or whether it's our children, or we get on Zoom with somebody that we enjoy, or we work in a garden, or we raise a tomato in a pot, whatever it is, whatever those things are, play music. We have to know ourselves well enough to find what those, those things are that renew us and renew our spirits and, and give that some attention and some 
you know, because, you know, we're here a short time, you know, I mean, that's really clear to me. I'm like 73 now. Right. You know, and I'm, you know, what, I don't know, maybe 10 more years or 15 more years on the work, you know, maybe longer, but I don't know. I don't have that long here. So I want to do my best to make it a better world and do my best to fight for the things I believe in and, and elevate the things I believe in and also have moments of goodness and joy in every day. So that's my working with Marcus Aurelius's quote and, you know, looking and looking at something in the face and knowing what it is. It's like, to me looking, maybe people didn't recognize it in the rise of Hitler, you know, maybe, um, you know, I, I, I just feel like all over the world right now, the people in the streets of Belarus. Um, I mean, and my heart goes to all people that are trying to you know, have a, a, a decent and fair life in their communities and countries. But we have to um, keep, you know, look things in the face and know them for what they are. <laughs>